Well, um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that our, our nation is literally in turmoil right now. Uh, it's upside down. One of my pastor friends described what's going on in the election as uh, worldlings battling for earthly power. Uh, that's pretty accurate. World, worldlings battling for earthly power. It's not to say these things are unimportant. In fact, the, the more you know about what's happening, it, you could argue that these are some of the most important days our nation has ever, ever faced. Um, we're living in historic days, in historic year, uh, to be honest. Dangers and uncertainties, fears abound. They're all over the place. And yet, when we come together, we're reminded that there's one person that's not battling for earthly power. And that's because he's seated firmly in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And soon, he's going to break the clouds of heaven. And he's going to make his descent to earth. And when his feet hit the ground, justice is going to roll. He will bring America and China and Russia and all other countries under the power of his government. And he's going to use us to help him do it. That's what the Bible means when it says we're going to reign with Christ. In Revelation, Paul's epistles, other places, Jesus promises that. And that's your hope tonight if you're a believer in Christ. And in the midst of the turmoil, God makes a table for us right here in the presence of his enemies, says Psalm 23. And there's honestly no place I would rather be tonight than here with you guys, God's people, meditating together in God's word, fellowshipping together, catching up, hearing what's going on in your lives. You guys are such an encouragement to me, and it's a, it's a joy to shepherd you. Now, tonight, you can notice by the blank screen, I do not have a PowerPoint. Um, so hopefully you can keep up without that. Uh, this sermon is fresh off the press, so uh, I just finished it right before I came in here. No time even for a PowerPoint, so that's full disclosure. Well, tonight the Lord's going to anchor us uh, with some incredible truth from the book of Ephesians right along this theme. So if you would, uh, open there with me to chapter 5 in Ephesians. And we've learned again and again in our study this semester that a lot, and I mean a lot, is at stake in how we live our lives now that we're Christians. So much is at stake. In fact, that's what the entire back half of this letter is all about, is how we live our lives, what the Christian life should look like now that we are new creatures in Christ. And one of the things that's at stake, one of the things among many, is we as the church are, are showcasing something to the world. We're showcasing what God is like, what kingdom life is like, what heaven is like, albeit very imperfectly. We are showcasing that to the world in the church. And Paul is very concerned about this thing. Very concerned. He knows that we, as the church, get this, are the only people on the planet that can actually show an unbelieving world what kingdom life is like. We're the only people on the planet that can do that. Real Christians are the only people who can truly point the way to real human flourishing as it was intended by our Creator in and through Christ. God's wisdom and power, Ephesians says, is put on dramatic display. Ephesians 3.10 it's put on dramatic display through us as he reconciles us to each other. As we learn to, to radically love each other. As we're patient with each other. As, we, as we're constantly gracious and kind with each other. Even though we get on each other's nerves. Because we're not fully redeemed yet. So a lot's at stake. In particular in how we demonstrate God's character to the world. And our text tonight. Uh, really the next paragraph we're going to be in for the next two weeks. It, it carries on this, this very theme of how we're to live in the middle of a wicked world during these evil days that we find ourselves in. So if you want a title for tonight's message, really for the next two weeks, is, is Living Wisely in a Wicked World. Living Wisely in a Wicked World. 
So, if you would, just by way of introduction, let's just read, read this new paragraph uh, with me tonight. Look, beginning in verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're going to cover this passage over the next two weeks. But you might be asking, just even as we read that, how, how do we know that Paul is concerned about what we're demonstrating to the world from this text? It sounds like he just wants us to live wisely. You know, there's some things in here about knowing the will of God and being filled with the Spirit. doesn't sound like there's a lot about evangelism or how the, how the, world, is, uh, how the world is looking in on us. Well, if you look closely, look, look dial in there to verse 15. And notice that this command, this first command, and really everything flowing after it, is actually an inference from the previous paragraph. So the ESV says, look carefully then. Look carefully then at how you walk. The NASB is a little more obvious. It says, therefore, be careful how you walk. So our passage opens with an inference. And it's as though Paul is saying, well, well, because this is true, then look carefully at how you walk. Look carefully at how you live. Well, because what's true, Paul? Well, if you remember from last week, the paragraph before this one was about what? Just shout it out. Sexual immorality, living purely, right? Paul doesn't want us to be characterized by lust, he says in the previous paragraph. Instead, he wants us to to live lives of moral purity. And beyond that, like we saw last week, he even wants us to be part of redemptively exposing others who are enslaved to this very thing. That's how that that paragraph ends. He wants us to, to graciously move in and shine the light of truth to show these things to be evil. But what's the goal of that? What's the goal of that exposure? Well, it's so that darkness becomes light. He wants unbelievers to awaken. Look back in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. He wants unbelievers to rise from the dead. He says, arise from the dead and and let Christ shine on them. Therefore, verse 15, says Paul, look carefully at how you walk. If you go on, therefore, pursue his will. Verse 17, therefore, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, that's that's the flavor here of this paragraph. In other words... Paul doesn't want us to get swept up in sin because he knows it pollutes our evangelism. He doesn't want us to get swept up in sin because he knows, Paul knows, that sin pollutes it. It pollutes our evangelism. He knows that that sin denies the gospel's power. So we're running around telling people that the gospel can save them and change them. And we're denying that by the way we live. So it it really is, in in essence, a denial of the power of the gospel. And Paul knows that that sin muddies what the kingdom life actually looks like. And remember, one of our purposes for being here is to actually demonstrate to the world, to an unbelieving world, what the kingdom life should look like. So a lot and more is at stake in our our evangelism by the way we live. And so Paul says, instead instead of this... We should look carefully at, at how we live. So, he, and he's going to go on. But tonight, I just I want us to to look at just three initial ways that we should live wisely in a wicked world. So that's where we're that's where we're headed. That's the the big structure of our of our night tonight. Three initial ways to live wisely in a wicked world. And I'm saying initial because we're not going to even touch this command to be filled with the Spirit because that's it's a big one. We're going to hold that off till next week, Lord willing. Um, but it's part of this paragraph. So these are three, the first three initial ways to live wisely in a wicked world. 
These are three areas that, that God in His providence wants us to focus in on tonight when we feel helpless in the midst of a, a crazy election year. Right? In the midst of feeling helpless of what can we do uh, as the world is, is spinning off the page is what it feels like. I mean, 2020, we felt like that all year, right? And it just this is sort of like the icing on the cake. So these commands are going to ground us tonight. So let's get into them. First, Paul commands us to give attention to the way that we live. Number one, give attention to the way that you live. Look with me again in verse 15. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So look carefully how you walk. Paul's telling us here to, to pay attention to how we live. It's the essence of this command. That's what it means to, to in, in Ephesians when we're talking about walking. It's a metaphor for our lifestyle. He's saying to take note of our behavior, to examine our lives. That's because Paul knows that we're tempted to coast. We're tempted just to slip into our routines, to mindlessly and unthoughtfully go about our daily lives without very much reflection at all. But as God's people, Paul doesn't want us to do this because like we've seen, a lot's at stake in our how we live. Now, there's a few things that I want to highlight about this, this command here in verse 15. Paul doesn't just say to give attention, but he says to give careful attention. Do you see that? So if you want a sub-point in this point, it would be look carefully. Verse 15, look carefully. So he wants us to give careful attention. Paul's not saying to give a glance or a passing thought every now and again to your life. No, he's saying that we should look closely. We should take inventory of how we're living in the various areas of our lives. He's saying we should carefully plan for and track the progress of our lives in Christ-likeness. That's what it means to look carefully at how you live. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Hold on, Clay. Uh, this sounds a little intense. Track my progress in Christ-likeness? Monitor the development of my faith? Set goals for growth? Uh, this seems a little overboard. Well, it might, because this is kind of un- we're not used to talking about our Christian lives in this way, but we do this in other areas of our lives, don't we? Think of all the areas that we give careful attention to. Things that when we weigh them out with eternal things, uh, they're not as weighty. Important, certainly, but not as weighty. So, I just picked a few easy examples. Low-hanging fruit. All right, exercise. Some of you are like, ah, doesn't apply to me, but that's okay. Some of you it does, so. Physical fitness, all right? People will wake up early, pay money for gym memberships. Maybe not you if you're at Liberty you are paying money for it. You just don't see it. You'll discipline yourself to eat a certain way. You'll map out progress goals, and it's all for just increasing your physical fitness. Now, it's important. Maybe you want to run a certain race or or be successful in a, a certain sport. But my point is that you'll give careful attention to it if you think it's important. If it's, if it's high on your value list, you're going to give careful attention. You're going to set goals. You're going to track progress. Okay, maybe education. Others of you are like, still doesn't apply to me. But it's okay, these are just examples. There's many more. You might get all your syllabi at the beginning of the semester, lay everything out, map out study times, your times for projects, group assignments. Maybe not. Others of you are like, oh, I should be doing that? Yes, you should be. You give careful attention to that area of your life. Maybe it's just right before the exam, but you still give careful attention to it. And you're doing that so that you're academically successful, so you you graduate college or whatever you're doing, trade school or whatever it is to to be successful in the area that you want to be successful in. Now, as important as these things are, Paul doesn't tell us to give painstaking attention to them directly. Right? He tells us to give painstaking attention to something deeper and more comprehensive to us as believers. That's our lives in total. 
the way that we live out our Christian lives before the Lord. So we need to ask, are we increasing in our trust of Him? And how is that manifesting in my daily life? Am I coming to resemble Christ more and more? Now I think if we're honest, when it comes to our development in Christ, we we often don't monitor it very carefully. Right? And it's important that right out of the gate, we we learn to be humbled here about this. To confess this to Christ, to seek His help. We often approach our growth really in the opposite of this word for for being careful. We We approach it in a kind of a haphazard way or a thoughtless way. Just kind of hoping that we're going to grow. Other than, than coming in and listening to a sermon on Thursdays and Sundays, and maybe praying here and there during the week, maybe reading your Bible, that may be about the extent of how carefully you watch your life. Now, hearing preaching is excellent, okay? And it's foundational. It's one of the primary ways that truth even comes to us. But merely thinking that acquiring more information here and there, that's just not enough. It has to impact our daily lives. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Truth has to upend us. It has to change our reality. It has to change what we think is important. It has to change what we think matters ultimately now. And it has to impact as a result, and it will it has to impact how we live in the day-to-day. If it's not, we don't believe it. We're just fooling ourselves. So, Paul says that we initially should look carefully at our lives to ensure that we're living wisely. And that's really the, the second part of this first point, subpoint B. If we're to, to look, look carefully, is that how I said it earlier? I don't even know my, I'm dependent on my own PowerPoint. I don't have one. Look carefully. We should also live wisely. Again, and this is all part of the first point. Notice what he says here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So when we're, when we're examining our lives, when we're looking carefully at our lives, we've got to know what we're actually looking for. Okay, if we're going to track progress. So what am I looking for? Here, Paul says we're looking for wisdom. We're carefully pursuing the development of wisdom in our lives. We're turning away from living unwisely. It's here. So, look then carefully how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So, that raises an, a natural question What exactly is wisdom? Right? What exactly is wisdom? Well, wisdom is just the developed skill of living in a way that pleases the Lord. Okay, the developed skill of living in a way that pleases the Lord. And Paul's already told us about this back in verse 10. ESV says, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. is part of what we're doing. And I think living wisely is just another way of saying that. Wisdom is the developed skill of living in a way that, that brings pleasure to our Lord. Or we could say it like this. Wisdom is truth believed and applied to the situations of your life. Wisdom is truth believed and applied to the situations of your life. If you want a longer definition, (laughs) this is from, I don't expect you to write this one down. This is from uh, one of the guys in our church. He says, Wisdom is the skill which enables a person to carefully navigate through the complexities and dangers of every aspect of life with righteousness. I love that. And this comes from a heart attitude of faith-filled fear of God and his word. Great statement. I'll read it again. Wisdom is a skill which enables a person to carefully navigate through the complexities and dangers of every aspect of life with righteousness, which comes from a heart attitude of faith-filled fear of God and his word. He told me not to cite him, but that's Michael Laurie. Uh, he teaches the Koinonia class, but don't abandon me for the Koinonia class, okay? Because I know that was good. 
All right, yeah, Mike was helpful. He's done a lot of work in Proverbs, and so I was texting him this afternoon. I was like, hey, give me your most concise definition of wisdom. And like 30 seconds later, bam, he gives me this. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. Got to read that. So I just betrayed his confidence. Don't tell him that I quoted it. So Paul's saying we should live wisely. So as you learn to reflect Christ in your dorm, as you learn to love others in Boundless, as you learn to serve the wider body at Timberlake, as you learn to be faithful and diligent in school, as you learn to battle the lies of your heart, as you learn to be faithful at work, you're developing a heart of wisdom. And progress in wisdom is what we're looking for, says Paul, when we give close attention to the way that we live. It's what we're carefully monitoring the the development of. And we don't want to be haphazard in this or thoughtless as to how we're growing in the application of truth to our daily lives. Paul says here that we want to be increasingly characterized by wisdom, by God's wisdom. And in the context, it's in order to display this wisdom to an evil world. So remember, part of our purpose is to display the wisdom of God. So if we're going to obey this command, uh, what will it take? Okay, what's, what's it going to take in our lives? What are some examples of what this looks like? Well, first, let me say what it doesn't look like. I think that may be a little more helpful. Some of you, when I say this, you're going to hear, oh, I've got to look at everything in my heart. Okay, so no. This does not look like constant, morbid introspection. So rule that out, okay? That's not what this is. Because that leads to perpetual discouragement. There will always be more ways you can grow, which means there's always going to be more examples of your failures in your heart, which means you're always going to see more areas that you need to improve before the Lord, because guess what? You will always be in progress. When we see failure and sin, and you will, you'll see it every time you look, most likely, the Lord tells us to confess these things to him. And let them humble us to more dependency on Christ. Okay? Remember, our works didn't get us in. And they definitely don't keep us in. So we are, we are in Christ. We are saved because of Christ's work for us on the cross. So when we see continual sin in our lives and, and perpetual sin and, and opportunities for growth, we confess those to the Lord, let them humble us. And, and Christ's righteousness is all that we have before the Lord. It reminds us of that. Our failings serve as, as an awesome reminder of this, actually. And they also remind us that God's still for us. And he's going to help us eventually learn to obey him in these very areas that we're struggling in. So, you rule that out, okay? Number one, doesn't look like constant morbid introspection. So what does it look like? Well, what's involved? I think it, I think it involves setting aside consistent times for reflection and inventory. So obeying this command looks like setting aside consistent, dependable times that you're going to give reflection to your life. You're going to take inventory of what's going on. I think that's just implied in this careful attention language. It means you've got to set aside time to do it. It's, uh, It's hard to look at something carefully on the fly. Imagine running through like a museum, an art museum, trying to trying to catch the paintings as you're, as you're running by them. It's hard, to, it's hard to do that. So we need to set aside some time. Uh, just personally, this is not a have to. I like to journal uh, as I'm working through the areas of my life. But just admitting publicly to you, I need to set aside more consistent times for this kind of reflection, this kind of inventory taking. Uh, my life's busy like yours is, and uh, I, I need to carve out, prioritize this and carve out time to do this, to obey this command. And that's the beauty of exposition, is that uh, the pastor grows right alongside the sheep in, um, as, we're, as we're working through text together. So the Lord is definitely exposing me this week in that area. So I think it involves that. I think it involves setting aside some time to, to reflect. I think it also involves knowing what areas the Lord is going to hold you responsible for, right? So you've you got to know what he's going to call you to account for on that final day when you stand before him at the Bema seat. So what providentially has God given you to be faithful with? What circumstances are you, are you currently in? 
What challenges are you facing? Where are you constantly sinning, like the besetting sin that you know all about? Where is that? What area of your life is your conscience most inflamed by? Where would you like to see improvement or fruit produced? Those are all areas that the Lord's going to hold you responsible for. And as you, as you grow and mature, some of those things increase. Um, and that's good to already be in the habit of sort of taking inventory, knowing the areas of your life, the buckets, if you will, and being able to, to think through those before the Lord. Then, once you've sort of identified those, identified those areas, then ask, how does God's Word apply to these areas? What principles need to be learned and believed to be faithful in these areas? Where am I most tempted to act unwisely in these areas? What does wise living look like in these areas? So you've got to know what God's Word says specifically about those, those areas and then how the principles more widely from God's Word come to apply in those particular situations and areas. Now, I know that's intense. You're like, whoa, you... Uh, you obviously don't know what you don't know, right? <laughs> I've been there many times. So that's why we need the church. So like I said earlier, it, it starts with preaching systematically through Scripture and putting yourself under faithful preaching and singing of God's Word in the context of the gathering. God promises us to supply us with wisdom from His Word, Proverbs 2. And He gives it lavishly to those who ask for it, James 1. But... It also comes to us through others in the body, through faithful discipleship. And that's a huge one, okay? That is a huge way that we learn these principles and how to navigate life in a wise way in these particular areas. So as you get to know others that are ahead of you in the body, and you need to be doing that, okay? So you need to be taking that initiative, getting to know people that are ahead of you. As you do that, identify some questions that you have and, and find a time to ask them. So, just kind of help you spell this out here. Here's some examples of things you could ask someone older. When you were in college, what did you wish that you knew that you know now? What are the greatest spiritual pitfalls that you experienced in college? What are some helpful biblical principles that you found in your growth in college? Or, let's say you know what the Lord desires from you, like, you know, you're, you're working hard at your job. You know the Lord desires you to work hard, and you're just really struggling because of a particular situation at, at work. You might find an older saint, and you see, man, they've cultivated a serious work ethic here, and they're able to bear up under a lot of pressure. So uh, what principles did they learn and apply over time that produced the incredible work ethic that, that we see operating in their life, right? And that's specific. So, like, work from your life out and the, just identify the areas you want to learn about, know about, and then find some saint that's, pray for the saint to come to you or find them, you know, and then we'll help you pair up and then ask them about that. And you'll find that, that growth will increase in your life just from receiving that wisdom from those mature saints. So once you've set aside some time, you've kind of identified the areas, you're, you're approaching, you're kind of getting biblical principles, you're starting to apply them. I would, I would set some goals to try to achieve growth in these areas. Okay? I know this sounds a little crazy, but Paul's always striving. He was always improving uh, by the power of the Spirit. But maybe you're not convinced. You're saying, uh, this sounds a little legalistic. I'm not, aren't I just supposed to let the Spirit change me? Yes, the Spirit does change you. But he does it through the means of our efforts. The Spirit changes you through the means of your effort. So you're like, wait a minute. My wires are crossed here. How does this work? Well, before you were a Christian, the Bible says you had zero power. You had no power. You had no desire really to change. I mean, you may have, been, you may have felt guilty about certain things, but you really had no deep desire to, to be different. And you certainly had no faith that, that actually leads to change. Because all change comes out of faith. It's born out of faith. And God grants faith to believers. So now God has granted you, if you're a believer, he's granted you saving faith. 
you believed the gospel, you've repented from your sin, and that was all by the power of the Spirit. So you may have thought, well, I just did that. Well, why did you do that? Because you were dead before that. It's because the Spirit was working. So you see how these things work together? Your effort, the Spirit's enablement. Our growth is the same way. Continues in the same way. We continue learning to believe the Lord, and we act on His truth by faith. And the Spirit is working in all of that the entire time through all of this, even in your most like grinded out moments of sanctification. But it's, it's definitely not some sort of passive thing that we let go. It's not painless. It definitely costs us. Obedience is hard. It takes effort. It's not effortless. I think sometimes we think all these things, that it should be painless. It should be effortless. It should be, I shouldn't have to do anything. But that's not the way the Bible presents this. The Spirit works to energize our faith and obedience, and then we act by faith on these promises. So, my point in all of this is just to set goals with others in the body, alongside others in the body, and together to, to try to achieve those goals. And it's baby steps, guys. Like, the Spirit doesn't just, like, take you from here to here overnight. I mean, we work at, at achieving those goals together of, of growth in Christ. So, it's crucial that we give careful attention to, to living wisely, this first point. And this means, second that we need to learn to redeem the time, Paul says. We need to learn to redeem the time. That's, that's point number two. The second way that we live wisely in the world. We've got to learn to redeem the time. Look with me in verse 16. Paul says, well, verse 15, look carefully in how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Literally, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. This is uh, very important. It's hard to under, understate how important this, this principle is, this command. Time is one of the most precious commodities that we have. And we're always losing it. And to make matters worse, we have so many things competing for it constantly. And the things that compete for it all scream that they're important. That they're going to bring pleasure. That they're worth the time, the investment that it's going to take to, to interact. So our schedules quickly get filled up and we're busy all the time. And I think busy is like the default status of our culture. Even if we're really not actually that busy. Um, <laughs> even our kids are busy. When our son was just learning to talk. Uh, Mary, you'll remember this. He would come up to us and say, Whew, I am so busy. And uh, what he meant was that he was tired. So busy was his shorthand for tired. But I guess what he observed in dad and mom was that being busy meant being tired. So uh, it's an indictment on us. But Paul knows that, that living wisely also means learning to use our time in the most beneficial and eternally productive ways. He literally tells us in this, this passage to redeem the time. Make the best use of it. Redeem it. Redeem has the idea of buying something back out of slavery. So just think your redemption, right? You were enslaved, came in, redeemed you, got you out of slavery, and now you're his. You belong to him. So in this case, he's, he's telling us to redeem or buy back time. And he's using a metaphor to say that we need to make the most of the time that we have left. To make the most of it. Because think about it. We used to be dead in sin, enslaved to sin, and our only option was to use time in ways that fueled Satan's countermission in the world. That was our only option. That's what we did, even if we didn't realize we were doing that. We were flitting time away, we were using it for our own ends, and we were just supporting his countermission in the world. But now... We are alive now that we belong to God, now that we have the Holy Spirit illumining the truth and transforming us, now we have the chance to redeem the time, to make it count eternally. Now we have the chance to use it to produce lasting fruit in the world. That's incredible, okay? This incredible way he puts this here. 
so instructive for us. And he really wants to motivate us to action here. And so to do that, Paul reminds us that the days that we live in are not neutral. They're not good days. They are evil days. So look again in verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What does he mean when he says that the days are evil? You talking like exam days or Mondays or work days? <laughs> no, he's not saying certain days of the week are evil. We know that. Even though you might think that. What he's saying is that the time period that we live in is evil. The time period that we live in. Paul will go on in this letter to describe the age we live in as, quote, this present darkness. Chapter 6, verse 12. This present darkness, because it's governed by Satan and his hordes. And if we pan out from Ephesians, if we, if we, if we look in other parts of Scripture, we also know that the kingdoms of the earth have been given temporarily to Satan. That's Luke 4. Luke 4, 5, and 5 through 7. Satan's tempting Jesus. And he took him to, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he basically says, all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to me. I've been given authority over them. And I'll give them to you if you worship me. And Jesus didn't say, no, you don't have authority over that. He, he, he sort of acknowledges that that's true. And then he counters it with the scriptures. So there is a very real sense he's not ultimately in charge. But Satan is temporarily been given dominion through the human rebellion of the kingdoms of the earth. That means that governments, cultures, worldviews, economies are all under his influence. Okay? Governments, <laughs> say that again. And all of it, the whole world system is under the influence of Satan. And in the book of Revelation, his influence, I don't know if increase is the right word, but it, it, will, it will come together. We'll see it visibly as all the governments in the world unite against God's people. So, Paul says, these days that we live in, right now, are fundamentally evil days. You say, yeah, okay, like, hammer me on that, Clay. Like, why are you hammering me on that? Because you, we don't think about it that way. Is this how you think about the day when you wake up in the morning? That you're waking up to face evil. That you're in a war of cosmic proportions. That your choices make a very real difference in that war today. That there is work to be done for Christ and his kingdom right now. Or, do you and I envision these days as, as predominantly good? It's a time of relative peace and prosperity. Not as a time to fight. Even more, do I, do I see my unbelieving neighbors around me as, as dead and ensnared by the lies of Satan? We need to make sure that we're not lulled to sleep here, thinking that we're in a time of peace when we're not. Thinking we're at home in the world when we're not. We are in enemy territory. As a colony of heaven. And we've got to remember, says Paul, that, that the days are evil. And if we do that, this will motivate us to both redeem the time and, the very first command, to watch our lives carefully. You see that connection? We could say it like this. If we're not giving careful attention to how we live, and we're not redeeming the time, this reveals that we don't think we're in any real danger. This reveals that we think that the days that we live in are predominantly good or neutral. But if, if we realize we're in a war and that this grassy field that we're walking through in life, is a, even though the field looks normal, it's actually mined with explosives that are designed to blow us up, we're going to be much more conscientious about where we step and how we walk. Right? If we see unbelievers as prisoners of war, unknowingly strapped with explosives themselves, we're going to want to help them. If we see our brothers and sisters in Christ flirting around with the enemy soldiers, 
of sin, we're going to want to move in and warn and rescue them, won't we? So Paul knows we've got to remember that the days we're living in are evil. We've got to know who we're fighting against so that we can be motivated to use our time to counter it. And he's going to open that wide open in chapter 6 in spiritual warfare at the end of this, really it's the end of this section. We'll get there next semester, but where it's, it's coming. But this, this text, this, even this one little statement, it raises the stakes on time management, doesn't it? Think about time management. Time management. Time management. Manage my time. It's like we're in a war, okay? We're in a war for souls. Yes, you need to manage your time. You need to manage your time to this end. That's the point of Christian time management. It puts it in a different category altogether. And that said, there's a lot of ways that we can go off track with our time. The time that's allotted to us to combat these evil days. The time that God has gifted to us for his purposes. And here are a few just obvious categories, okay? Ways we go off track. Number one, sin. Okay? Sin. Any time in sin is squandered time. And in fact, as we'll see in a second, it's not just squandered, it's actually hijacked time. It's time for the enemy to exploit us for his purposes and to use us for his purposes. It's time we give back to him, time we don't redeem. So sin's obvious, we don't need to go into that. Sin's an obvious squandering of time. Another area would just be generally time wasters, okay? As you examine your life, you know, as we're doing point number one, we're applying point number one, we're examining our life, we should think through how we actually spend our time. So take a week and just monitor it. Okay, how do I do that? Well, write it down. Like, just work through, get a, get a calendar. You guys are technologically savvy. I'm sure there are apps for this. Get a calendar and look at your time and how you spend it. And ask yourself, how much of my time is wasted on things that at best don't matter much at all? And if that sounds severe, just think. You're going to have to give an account for all that time before the Lord. This is a mercy that you're hearing this right now. You're going to have to give an account to our general, our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ is his soldier for how you managed his time. So we want to be faithful soldiers. Now, a lot of ways we can think through this together, but in this terms of like thinking about wasting time and like what do you spend time on, what's permissible, what's not. So we can, we can adjudicate all that, you know, in our discipleship as we talk in our conversations. But, you know, we need rest, obviously. We need to take time aside, yes. Can we have hobbies? Certainly. Our Lord knows that we are but dust. He's not a harsh master at all. He's the opposite of that, in fact. He's a tender shepherd. He's the creator of every good thing, and he takes pleasure when we enjoy his good gifts. He does. But he does not take pleasure. He is not pleased when we idolize the gifts he's given us. When we make these gifts ultimate, when we idolize rest and relaxation and we neglect our responsibilities and neglect his mission on earth, as redeemed people, our desire should be like Christ's desire, to delight in doing the will of our Father. And so this idea of just like grinding through the week, complaining about work or school, living for the next good experience, the next thing we can finally, you know, the next time we can finally do whatever we want. This is indicative of this attitude of like idolizing gifts and leisure. Nothing wrong, again, with enjoying it, but when it's just we're complaining about everything else and we're living for the weekend or we're living for the off day or we're living for the break, it shows that we're not viewing our time like we ought. And what is really pretty interesting in this sort of time waster category is, I was thinking about my own life, is just how quickly I'm going to turn to something that wastes my time, even though I'm doing it, I'm trying to relax. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're kind of at that veg stage. Yeah, mine's done. 
don't really want to do anything else. You're just going to kind of go into autopilot. That's not bad, okay? I get it. We're frail human beings. But let's just take the, the most obvious thing that many of you do, myself included. You pull up your social media app, right, to veg. Do you do that? Am I, am I, like, am I shooting to target this out here, or is this, is this actually something you guys do? Okay, like this if you do, like this if you don't. All right, so make sure I'm hitting this. It's not a trick question. I'm not going to hammer you. Well, the funny thing is I'll sit down after a long day. I'll open a social media app to veg for a second. But if I'm not careful, catching up on what's happening in my social circle as a chance to just unwind turns into 30 or 45 minutes of mindless scrolling. Right? With what result? I'm often not refreshed. I'm not stimulated for good works. I'm not encouraged. I'm not rejuvenated and ready to work hard for the Lord. That's not what's happened. In fact, I think if we're, if we're not careful in this area, that the thing that we're sort of like vegging with, Netflix, social media, whatever it is, may be a portal for more sin. But think about this. Okay, on the flip side. God promises to give us the things that we're often grasping for in these veg times. Things like what? Well, God promises to give us surpassing peace, like we heard about on Sunday. Surpassing peace, the tranquility of our soul when we trust in Him. He promises renewed strength to those who wait on Him and know Him intimately. He promises clarity and joy to those who renew their minds. So just keep that in mind. Think, think these things through next time you're tempted to just sort of mindlessly scroll Instagram. Like, wh- what am I doing? Now, there's a place to scroll Instagram. I'm not saying you don't scroll Instagram, but what, what's your end goal in that? What's motivating you to do that for the next 30 minutes or an hour? So that's just examples. I mean, we could multiply those out for, for areas of our lives, man, that we just, we just waste time. They're not inherently bad, the things we're doing, but it's just, it's just taking up time. Time that could be spent producing eternal fruit. So third category here, so if you've got sin, time wasters, third category, it would be what I would call good versus best. Good versus best. Now this is definitely the most difficult category, I think. Because once you start taking your time seriously, once this starts setting in for you and you're like, oh my goodness, I've limited time, I'm dying every day, I literally go to bed thinking about this every night. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or what, but I'm like, I'm like doing the math in my mind. If I live to a ripe old age, I'm at least a third of my life over, you know, and at least maybe more. I don't know when I'm going to die. But I mean, there's just like, these things are often on my mind. And so once, you, once that starts setting in, there's so many good things you could do, so many things to learn, so many ways you could be productive for the glory of God that it's overwhelming. But what's incredibly important in redeeming time is that we learn to differentiate what's good from what's best in the moment. And boy, that's tough. And it doesn't get easier as we grow. <laughs> Life gets more complex. There's more things that are clamoring for your time that are very, very good things. And you have to learn to sort of adjudicate, kind of stay in your lane and work at what God's given you to do and what he's gifted you to do. So, again, there's a lot more we could say about this when we're just trying to think through application. But the one thing that's probably helped me the most is sort of like knowing long-term goals for my life. Uh, And that's sort of a combination of definitely the foundation is what does Scripture say? So I want to my highest priority should be the things we're seeing in this text, right? Like moral things that I'm pursuing. So all my life to be characterized by certain things. And so I need a plan to try to get to those things, to, to develop those things in my life, have the Lord develop that as I, as I strive. And then just knowing how you're gifted, knowing providentially where the Lord's placed you and the circumstances he has around your life. So like sort of determining these long-term goals that you want to work hard at over time by putting your head down. And just keep doing the next thing to, to, build the, to build the skyscraper, right? You don't want just like the little play Lego house. You want the skyscraper. But that takes time, intentionality, planning, and a lot of hard work. 
but it's lasting, it's permanent. You know, the little, probably sandcastle would have been a better analogy because that's just going to go away with the tide, right? But the skyscraper is going to stand. So we want to we want to give ourselves to tasks um, that are going to that are going to stand, that are going to be in, in, in not just in this life but eternally. So setting those long-term goals, again, we can talk about that um, as defined by Scripture, and then working to accomplish those goals helps to give you some discernment in the moment of, like, I could either do this good thing or this good thing. So which one of them is going to help me get to the goal better, quicker, more efficiently? And you kind of have to know your lane in that. There's some, there's some like, you can't do everything. So you kind of have to prioritize. What are those things that, that you're going to give your attention and time to? And it's different for everybody. I mean, other than the things we're about to talk about. <laughs> um, so how exactly do we come to know the foundation of what these best things are? Well, Paul tells us in command number three, uh, our third way to live wisely in the wicked world. And he says that we should get after knowing God's will. Verse 17, get after knowing God's will. And this will be brief. We're going to end here. So look with me in verse 17. He says, therefore, since the days are evil, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, Paul tells us two things here, and it's really the negative and positive side of the same coin. So, I'm just, it's all about God's will. He says, he says don't be foolish and understand what, what God's will is. The emphasis is on learning God's will positively in our lives. But the negative side of this coin is important. He says that we shouldn't be foolish. And literally, it's, therefore, do not become foolish. Don't become foolish. So this is huge. Paul's saying, hey, Christian, redeem the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't become foolish. What he's getting at is when we waste time, we're not simply just wasting time, even though that's what's happening. It's worse than that. We're actually growing in foolishness. So don't become foolish by wasting time. We're cultivating foolishness. So just think about that. Like you're, every time you do something dumb and you waste your time, you know, something that we shouldn't be doing, we're reinforcing to ourselves uh, that what's not actually important is important. Does that make sense? So like every time I kind of flip my time away, it's like, oh, yeah, because it's screaming to me that this thing is important and this thing is valuable and this thing is what you need to do. I'm just sort of reinforcing that lie, and I'm growing in my foolishness. So it's really important that we know that. He's put, but Paul says, therefore, don't become foolish. But instead of that, what should we do instead? We should get after knowing God's will. In other words, we need to get after knowing what pleases God and practice doing it. This is another way of saying what he said just a minute ago, that we should learn to live wisely. So wise living is found in knowing and doing what pleases the Lord, knowing and doing his will. And this, notice what Paul's not commanding here. And maybe next week, because I'm out of time now, maybe next week we can talk about this a bit, if this is confusing. But Paul is not commanding us to seek out God's specific direction for our lives. What do I mean? I mean, he's not commanding us to... to to seek out answers from God with these common questions that we ask. What should I major in? Where should I live? What job should I take? Who should I date? Who should I marry? Those kinds of questions. That's not what he's saying. That's not God's will in this text. Now, it's not that these decisions are unimportant. In fact, they may be some of the most important decisions you can, you can make um, in your life. They're incredibly important. Does God care about these decisions that you're making? Yes. Should you talk to God about them? Of course Will he give you wisdom and teach you principles to make wise decisions in these areas? Yes, he will. But don't miss what God is saying here. Paul is telling us to understand what God expects from us in the black and white pages of Scripture. He, he wants us to, to get after knowing how we should live as it's clearly revealed in his word. God has not clearly revealed to you what major you should have. Okay? He has clearly revealed the things he wants you to be about. That he will hold you responsible for. He's not going to judge you for being a math major versus an English major. So, 
he will hold you to account for, for what he has held out before you. So Paul's saying that we should get after knowing exactly how God's word applies in our daily situations, in, our, in the areas that he's given us to be faithful in. And in this way, we will more than fully redeem the time allotted to us. Does that make sense? I could say it so many different ways. He will use our faith-filled obedience to him to combat these evil days. He will use our obedience to draw others to himself, to expand his temple, to increase his glory in the world. Now, really? Yes, God will do all of that, just as we learn to obey him in our daily situations. So, let's end by just fleshing that out. What happens in the world as I seek to obey these directives that Paul just gave? What happens? How does God expand his temple? How does, he, how does he work in the world? When I feel so helpless, I can't change the election. I can't decide who's going to win. I can't, you, we just feel so helpless in this, this time that we live. But God is saying if we give attention to these commands, he's going to work. So how? Well, you and I, as we obey, the scriptures say we gain more insight into the truth. And guess what converts people? The truth, right? We learn more about the lies that we believe We learn more about the idolatries that the truth exposes because we see them in our own lives. We learn how to crush those idolatries with the truth. And we see it clearly because the log has been removed out of our eye. We can now see clearly to help others, including unbelievers who struggle with it. They're enslaved to the same lies and idolatry that you were. So as you learn to obey more and more, you're going to gain more and more insight into the truth to help other people. Beyond that, You're going to be further humbled by your own weakness and failure and persistent sin. The harder you try to grow, (laughs) you're going to be met with some opposition right out of your own heart. And that humbles you. And humility is very attractive. It equips us to be patient with unbelievers who don't have the Spirit. It equips us to continue to love them in spite of being rejected or mocked or scorned. Because we're humble. So how else? Well, like we said, we showcase the reality of the power of the gospel. And this is not just talk. The word of God, Christ and his spirit, are full of transforming power. Power that changes dead people into people who are alive, into people who are changing, into people who are growing, progressively resemble their creator. The world cannot manufacture that. Like I've said before, the Lord will use this undeniable fruit in our lives to either bring folks to him in conversion. It will, they, people that are enslaved to sin, God promises to, to open their eyes to sort of see this sort of attraction like, whoa, there's there's holiness there. There's difference there. There's change there. I've, I've gone to this counselor and that psychologist, and, and I've gotten nowhere. I'm still enslaved. But they're changing. And God promises to use that to draw those kind of folks that are broken in sin to himself. And he promises to use, the, to use our fruit, our holiness that, that the world hated, to bring further opposition to the church. But either way, he promises to use the fruit of the church for his glory in the world. In either of those, either of those cases. And just more ways just here as we experience more joy as a result of following Christ when we are, are obedient. And this is also part of undeniable fruit. And the world has no joy. No real joy. But this is part, this should characterize the church. And finally, our lives increase in stability in the midst of an unstable world. Again, it's part of the fruit. Now, we could just keep going, but we're going to suffice it to say that even during this incredibly unstable period, as, as God's people, he wants us to live wisely, as defined in this text, right here in the middle of it, in the mess, okay? Irrespective of who's president irrespective if we become a Marxist country, 
which is like one of my greatest fears, okay? So he will use us and use the church for his great glory right here in the midst of the crazy as we give attention to these commands. And he, he promises, again, back to Ephesians 3, to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. So let's pray. Father, we do pray that all that we see here in this text would characterize us um, as a church and as a college ministry. And you know my prayers, Lord, but I, I do pray again that um, that we would bear eternal fruit for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.